Welcome to The Counselor's Chair, a podcast brought to you by Traverse Counseling Services. Join us as we explore all things human, mental health, psychology, philosophy, and a few extras. Be sure to check us out on all forms of social media and visit our YouTube channel at The Counselor's Chair. Hey everyone, Josh here. Thanks for listening today as we're going to touch on some ideas that are very personal to me. In this episode, Andrew interviews me on the topic of death and how awareness and acceptance of death can increase your quality of life. I took this opportunity to put words to thoughts I've been having for some time, and I hope this is good content for you to be thinking about. Also, I hope this provides a schema for how to think and talk about difficult topics. I really use this as an opportunity to literally think out loud, so hopefully letting you into my process is helpful. All right, now get to the podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, so Josh and I were talking a few weeks ago about possibly changing the format of the podcast and just trying to figure out just just kind of the best way to approach that. Um, I think part of the reason we wanted to kind of look at format was just because, you know, you and I have had substantial conversations that I think we wish that uh, had been recorded. <laughs> um, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so we're just going to kind of switch it up a little bit. This is going to be more like a conversation, um, just kind of just whatever comes up. Um, in the psychology world, we might call this stream of consciousness. Um, Josh and I might just call it a, a, a typical Sunday evening <laughs> dialogue. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, we're just going to see where we go, see where we end up. Sound good? Sounds good to me, man. Awesome, man. So, um, so what's on your mind? Well, um, so I was thinking about this on the way on the way up here to record, and I I think I I think I like the format. We'll kind of see how it we'll see how it goes. I mean, right. uh, the worst that can happen is that it doesn't go well, and um, you know we just won't post it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not paying for it anyway, so right. that's good. Um, well, I uh, you know I wanted to to take the opportunity. A lot of times when I meet with clients, I give them exercises in free association and a lot of times those exercises are really difficult free association is kind of like what andrew was talking about with stream of consciousness where you know you you have a you kind of have a general idea of what you might want to think about but you don't really know quite how to put words to it and you don't know how it's going to emerge but instead of trying to control that you just let it emerge whether it's in writing or speaking um, sometimes in different various forms of art Today, it's going to be our conversation, and hopefully, um, Andrew and I have had countless, uh, very deep, good conversations, and so hopefully this is just as organic, though uh, totally. <laughs> there is a microphone, and <laughs> it yeah. is recording, and it's other a, people are going to listen different, to this. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely but a little different. Also, it'll maybe help me a little bit, because uh, just in case anybody was wondering, I have a little bit of anxiety <laughs> doing this, <laughs> and... Uh, I've, uh, we've also talked a lot about, I think actually what brought up the change was me, uh, just kind of expressing like this whole idea that I feel like I can't really be myself. So maybe this will kind of knock the edge off, uh, for me to be able to free associate naturally and, uh, maybe we'll take off a little better. I can have a little better content and input. (laughs) Well, it, and it definitely puts me in a, puts me in a situation that is, it is different. I'm basically 
what I'm coming in is I'm just going to share literally what I've been thinking about over the last few months, and I'm going to attempt to make sense of it with you because it's in my head and it kind of makes sense. But I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think putting it out into words will actually help me, um, will help me formulate it better. But thinking of it in regards to, okay, uh, I'm talking with Andrew here. Like it can't just be making sense in my own head. I actually have to put words to this in a way that makes sense to Andrew and in, and frame it in a way that we can actually dialogue about it versus it being a monologue, which is typically what's in your head. Um, a lot of times it's good to challenge the monologue, get somebody else in there, make it a dialogue conversation. This is why we have a job. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> Just describe therapy. How much are you going to charge me at the end? <laughs> quite expensive. <laughs> a friend's discount. Yeah, friend's discount. Right on. Um, well, cool. Uh, as far as what I, I think we'll be formulating today and these are conversations that Andrew and I have had which are, which will be helpful on both ends um, certainly be helpful for me because he's knowledgeable in this area too but I actually want to talk a little bit about existential therapy uh, my thoughts about it and what I mean my thoughts about it not not just my thoughts of existential therapy but like the thoughts that I have as an existentially geared person so this is not like a, a pre a pre cursor or a course on existential therapy though you might learn a little bit about it um this is this is my own internal existential wrestling so it's a little vulnerable at the same time and if you're not familiar with what existential therapy or what existential thought is in general existential thought is a mainly philosophical term that refers to trying to understand our existence and our place within existence um, trying to make sense trying to make meaning trying to formulate some sort of order around what feels like it. there's a there's a popular book in philosophy called sophie's world and in this book uh, it's described as uh, the universe is described as the rabbit being pulled out of a magician's hat and we are like little microorganisms on the rabbit like we're like infantile little bugs on the rabbit and we climb up the top of the hairs to try and catch a glimpse of the magician right it's like to try and catch a glimpse of how in the world this works but who knows maybe the universe is just as shocked that it appeared um as we are who knows and these are sort of some existential ponderings is like trying to figure out okay so what is our place in this and you see a lot of attempt by religion um, to formulate answers around this obviously we have ancient wisdom and ancient stories through all different types of religious um, religious traditions uh, some are referred to as myths some are referred to as truth I mean e each person kind of has their own take on these things but we see that this has been the existential wrestlings of man have been I am I imagine around since the the moment of human consciousness, right? The moment that humans were able to think about their own thoughts. Um, it's a, and and there is some me that is thinking about what I'm thinking about, right? There's like a right. core that is having that is that is processing my actual thoughts and then you start to realize that maybe there's there's more to you than just your thought process or even your behavior process right. that there's some sort of internal workings that's consistently evaluating that and almost having a conversation and a dialogue with your own thoughts as a human right. and being aware of that right 
Yeah, I, I think that awareness, I think, modernly translates to something like mi- mindfulness, right? right. Yes. Um, which, which I imagine we'll naturally get into today. So that's a little precursor on existential uh, existentialism and existential therapy is a sort of offshoot of that that is a non-traditional branch of therapy it's a it, it's it has a theoretical basis not as researched as the others uh, mainly because it's really hard to research right it's almost more of a philosophy um, like a, a way of life not so much like a structured modality correct and it and it plays out interpersonally right. in the session so interpersonal therapists uh, therapists that are really focused on relationship in the room or relationship with them with themselves and the world around them and themselves and other people around them are generally going to orient in some sort of existential way, even if they're not thinking about it. Uh, It's something you can't really teach either. It just sort of comes natural to the mind if you're open to that type of philosophy. Um, It's important to know that there, that uh, Irvin Yalom wrote a book on this and really did put structure. He did create a therapy modality with existentialism though he is really careful to say that this should not be a all-encompassing single modality this is not meant to address every issue nor should it be the only thing that you're using in therapy as a therapist to help your clients uh, which is which is significant because that also means that I know, I've, I've not put this together. See, this is that process. You'll kind of hear things click together. I'll have my own aha moments, right? Uh, just that statement lets us know that um, it's important that when we're looking at the world, the existential philosophical questions are not the only things you should be pulling in to try and uh, nail meaning for your own life. Like there are other things outside of these four existential fears one being fear of death one being fear of isolation one being fear of freedom and the other being um uh, a fear of meaninglessness uh or purposelessness Uh, different people use different terms there but so are those are those actually like four specific things based off of like yalom's readings Mm -hmm. okay so those are like kind of like four tenets of of existential like fears I suppose. yes they're called the givens oh, okay uh, quote unquote gotcha. the givens okay. uh, not gibbons but not like coach but g-i-v-e-n-s gotcha. givens and and in a way you can trace those four things straight back to birth it's almost like you're born right. with these things they are they're inherently part of the human um, problem of existence and why it's a problem is because a lot of times these fears present themselves in ways that, ways that are rather debilitating, particularly through the lens of trauma. However, I've, of these four different fears, I've spent a significant amount of time thinking about the fear of death. I feel like it's it's probably been a four and a half year journey with this specific thing more in the last couple of years Andrew you could attest to this I've sort of developed not an obsession with death but an obsession in regards to understanding how acceptance of death can actually enhance the quality of one's life right Um, and so I've spent a significant amount of time around that and there's one there's one quote that I'd really like to explore this is actually from Yalom's text, Existential, Existential Therapy. You can 
check that out if you want. It's a textbook, though. I think I might be it's probably like one hundred and forty-six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I wound up with a signed one for twenty-five bucks, which was hmm. just insane that that happened. Um, anyway, he he brings up this this quote and he pulls from other philosophers to formulate this thought but i really like the way he puts it into words the quote is this though the physicality of death destroys us the idea of death may save us so the quote again though the physicality of death destroys us the idea of death may save us um i feel like i should say a prayer after that (laughs) (laughs) i was about to say that was very pastor-esque And I will repeat myself. Yeah, my inner inner familial roots are all pastors. (laughs) Josh and I are holding hands at this moment. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, We're not not really. No, but I I wouldn't mind. (laughs) Um, So, there's a... There's a good, you might hear this and think, what the heck are you talking about? Let me, I can kind of paint this metaphorically. There are, there's a certain type of flowers. It's not just a singular flower. There's actually certain flowers that have a very, very short bloom cycle. Um, Some of them only bloom in the dark. Some of them only bloom for 24 hours. Some of them only bloom in shorter times than that. And then they don't bloom anymore. And one of the ways that you can view this quote is... Um, is is like this. If you were to walk through a garden, let's say you were walking, I don't know where there's gardens, whether it's maybe you have a garden at your workplace, maybe at home, maybe at a university, maybe at a church. You're your grandparents' through, house. Your grandparents' house, yeah. You're walking through this, you're walking through this garden and you're admiring what you see. You can see beauty in, in these flowers. But the knowledge, the knowledge uh, the knowledge that some of these blooms that you may be seeing uh, are going to perish and, and you may never actually get to see one again. Uh, like the knowledge that the, that the bloom is finite and, and a very small timeline finite, <clears throat> you may stop. If you know this, if you have that knowledge and you know how to identify these plants, you might actually stop and like take a selfie with this thing. Right. Um, you might stop and admire the flower. You may stop and reflect on it and get excited and have a whole range of emotions that you're getting to see this thing that you might not ever get to see again because it blooms at such a random time and on such random cycles. Sure. Um, and that, I think, is a good way of understanding this quote. Is like when you understand the finiteness of your human existence, and I let me pause i'm gonna i'm gonna pause and say something else here this is uh, this feels important some of our listeners may be christians some of our listeners may not be christians i think that the things that i'm talking about throughout this and that andrew and i are going to discuss i think they're relevant to both right i think that they're relevant they're relevant to both there are ways in which this fits very well into the Christian dynamic and very well into the non-Christian dynamic or any other religious dynamic, honestly. Um, so, so don't tune me out. Don't tune Andrew out. Let's, let's hear this out. But this, this idea of seeing that your, your human life is finite. And as a Christian, it's like, well, no, I'm not finite. It's like, okay. Like you, your, the Christian view is the soul may be infinite, maybe infinite. Right. 
Um, and, and that's totally fine. But your humanness, like your humanness, your current human state is finite. Yeah, you're like your life on earth mm-hmm. as we know it right now. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And as you see it, um, it, it ends. Uh, and, and if you take this flower metaphor and you say, well, I, I am working on accepting that fact. I'm trying to get myself to realize that that's going to happen. Right. In that process, though, that death physically destroys your body. Before that happens, before death destroys your body, the idea of dying, uh, the idea of death itself, uh, maybe not the idea of dying, because that usually has to do with some sort of method. It's the idea of death, the idea of non-existence can actually create in you something that saves the rest of your life from being repressed due to a fear of death that you're not actually dealing with. Yeah. Sure. Um, Because it's fundamental in us to fear death. I've heard a lot of people talk about it like this. You don't know the unconscious or non-conscious state. You don't know it. I've been unconscious before, and I don't know that state. I literally, I was unconscious. It felt like it felt like forever, and it felt like nothing. It was very, very strange. I don't remember right as I blacked out, but I do remember waking up. So I remember coming from unconscious to conscious. I had a pretty bad. I was about to say say, (laughs) snowboarding. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was a pretty epic snowboarding accident. but I, I don't remember that state. I don't remember the state before I was born. I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious. I have no idea. There's no way that anybody can say that. Sure. Uh, if it was conscious, gosh, it was uh, very faintly conscious. That's for sure because I can't right. recall it. Um, but anyway, not knowing consciousness or not knowing unconscious, not knowing, sorry, not knowing unconsciousness or um, the lack of consciousness, we can say it that way. Not being familiar with that naturally produces some anxiety when you're thinking about changing to the state of unconscious, <laughs> right? It's okay. like nobody will run headfirst into a wall just to see what unconsciousness is, right? Not maybe right. after a couple drinks or something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe more than a couple. Right. So, so there's a natural fear in us of death because there's a correlation between our understanding of death and our understanding of unconsciousness. Um, they seem to run hand in hand with each other. It's, it's sort of natural understanding. Now, the fear of death goes back uh, to what I, I've, I've thought about infants. I've had three infants in my home, and if they don't get fed, if they feel that they're alone, if they're in pain, if they uh, feel threatened, what do they do? They cry. Right. And they don't stop crying. <laughs> they don't stop crying until that right. that fear, which they can't identify as fear, then through good behavioral work, we now know that that's fear. That's mm-hmm. a fear response. We can hook up all kinds of nodes to the to the body right. and to the brain and say, "Oh, that's yeah, you." That's the fear of what comes next. Yeah. More more hunger. Right. Precisely. Right. Yep. We can also look at that with our now wiser and developed minds and say, "Well, what is the what is." what is that infant afraid of? Um, Why does that infant have a drive in it to cry and let somebody know or something know that it needs more care than what it's receiving or it's in pain? The existential approach and my approach is to look at that through the lens of these four different givens. 
um, mm-hmm. isolation, meaninglessness, purposelessness, though that probably affects an infant a little less. Um, and this fear of death, like fear of oh, something bad is happening and I don't know what it is. Right. Um, and in childhood, you don't really have any perception. Like there's no, like you can't, like the brain's not wired to where you can, you can kind of observe like, oh, okay, so this is, uh, you know, a mistake I made in the past so I can learn from that. All mm-hmm. you really know is, is what's happening right now and that's, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Precisely. Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting because the existentialist will also say, and I'll say this as well, having kids, it's one of the primary tasks of a parent is to help their child understand and be able to at least put words to what death is as an early at an early age. Sure. Like not not avoiding the death conversation. Of course. Um, with your with your children and helping them develop a schema of death otherwise what happens is it's precisely what you just said andrew is you learn through experiences that you should fear death and that natural Mm. that natural fear in you winds up getting amplified it gets put on steroids by traumatic instances by by traumas in your life by death in your life by seeing other people suffering by you suffering yourself by looking at the tv and seeing that the world is even suffering so it becomes a part of your personality really (laughs) um and that's i think that's kind of the unconscious part is when in adulthood and later stages of life, like when you just, when you respond in certain ways through avoidance or through addiction mm-hmm. or bad relationships or what, a ha- oh, what, yeah. what have you, like that's that kind of unconscious piece that goes back to like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's the, almost like the lack of education yes. and the understanding of what I'm feeling right now in the moment. Precisely. Okay. And the natural human response is to avoid Yes. Right. Is to is to avoid that feeling. Uh, I'd I'd put it this way. Right. We bury our dead in places that we don't visit regularly. We also put these these graveyards not on display. Right. We we position them in places where we're not overtly reminded of them. The military does it different. Right, right. The military, yeah. there's there's sort of a proudness associated. Oh, yeah, with that that's death. interesting. Yeah, there's it, there's it's a definitely honoring the dead. Right. right, and so there's this. Okay, they and see this goes right back to that meaningful and purposeful death right. is like meaningful and purposeful life. If we feel a person has led that type of thing, we're sure, way yeah. more apt to honor them in their death. Sure. Um, whereas vice versa, we we kind of know the 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 antithesis of that opposite so i don't want to derail like what you're saying but i wonder if there was a shift in our culture in particular because like if you go to um like any myriad of like old churches right mm-hmm. um the yeah. cemeteries are right next to the churches yeah. where people there's i i can't imagine anybody building a church and then putting a cemetery right next to it now i don't know of any modern churches that has cemeteries next mm-hmm. to them but any old church built in the 1700s you know, 17, 1800s, it seems like there's always a cemetery right next to it. Well, you know, and I think that those cultures couldn't avoid death like we can, right? Oh, the, right. You look at high infant mortality rate, you right. look at high, um, you look at high mortality rate for ages over 30, particularly in underdeveloped countries right. in those, in those times and eras. I mean, they didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have groceries. See, this is where it starts getting really interesting. Mm. We've formulated whole parts of our society around death anxiety. I, I believe we're... Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, the medical field is an example Insurance. Of that. Insurance <laughs> yeah. is an example of that. Grocery stores, 
being less than two miles from your house in every right. direction in developed countries, yeah. we have the means to avoid the problem of death. Right. Um, and and in previous centuries, previous uh, time spans, they death had to be a norm, a normal, well, maybe not a normal part of life, but a much more accepted part of life they had to confront it more often it was way more real um death was behind way more corners for them uh Mm. death is behind less corners for us because of how well insulated we've made ourselves from it i mean just the simple act of brushing your teeth this is my favorite one it's like why do you brush your teeth have you ever thought about that like there's multiple reasons why somebody might brush their teeth. Gosh, yeah, I'm really letting you into my head right now. <laughs> so there's multiple reasons why somebody might brush their teeth. One, they don't want their breath to stink. Well, why don't you want your breath to stink? Why, why, is, that a, why is that a problem? I mean, that's a social, well, it's a socially constructed norm, right? Sure. Yeah. Like, you, your breath stinks. Like, you're not going to have close conversations with people. You don't brush your teeth for a year and you see how people stand in right. accordance to you while you're trying it's to have a rejection. conversation. Right. There's a form of rejection in it. Also, what have we been taught happens to our teeth when we don't take care of them? How do we develop infections? And decay. Decay. Infections. Now, here's the wild thing is if we didn't have dentists to reconstruct your teeth for you, right? Um, and we didn't have dentists to cut out and rot and decay and infection from your teeth. Um, we actually know this from going back hundreds of years and seeing that people actually die from that. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but if they happen to live in our sociocultural norms, they would likely die with some distance between them and yeah. the people around them. Oh, like, for sure. And so I, you, you start to look at just these simple ways in which we've insulated ourselves from death, everything from a grocery store being right down the street to a, to a fast food restaurant chain being able to take over the world like a Chick-fil-A has. Right. There's a reason for that. <laughs> like, not only are you having your death anxiety met by someone at a drive-through, the reason why Chick-fil-A has become so popular is because they treat you with a with a certain amount of respect while they pacify your death. Um, <laughs> okay. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah. It's All like right. when we really start breaking down the psychology behind this, we see how deeply rooted our fears actually are. Um, so with with that with that said, I don't I, I hear people frequently say, Oh, I'm not afraid of death. It's like, ah. I'm pretty I'm hundred percent positive I've said that to you. Yes. And you called me out on it very yes. quick. Yes. Because you said, uh, how often do you work out a week? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what supplements? What do you what's your diet look like? Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> you know, and and uh, with that, right, there's not I want to be clear with that too. I wasn't right. like, you know, I wouldn't demean Andrew for taking care of his body, right? That's a, oh, no. that's a good thing. Well, it was, right? it was yeah. a conversation just like this. Yeah. Sure. yeah <laughs> it was, there was nothing demeaning. You were yeah. asking me questions yeah. like, to help me gain yeah, pers- understanding. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. No. But, but what you what you see is varying levels of anxiety behind people's rationales for doing it. Right. Right. At the most, most pathological end, that's an eating disorder. Hmm. Right. And at the most negligent end of it, it's diabetic. Right. Well, I understand that there's genetic factors into that, but just for the case of like putting some polarized things um, next to each other, or maybe at the other end of that is maybe something like the biblical definition of, of, uh, 
of sloth. Maybe something along those lines, right? Yeah, crushing a box of cinnamon buns every day. Yeah, got it. Right, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So we have these two varying things, and I think depending on depending on someone's awareness of their own anxiety with these fundamental fears that we carry, mm-hmm. and again, there's a really important thing to tease out there. Uh, fear and anxiety seem to have been like amalgamated in modern psychology. Sure. Um, they get used interchangeably, but... From my perspective, anxiety is an emotion that is a result of existential fear or dread. Now, I understand that's not going to be the most popular thing, but I feel it makes a lot of sense. Uh, When we're talking about this, you have this fear of death and you have a certain awareness of it. There's a certain height, like you have this awareness, you have this awareness spectrum, but then you also have... A sort of intensity spectrum that plays out within it as well based on how exposed or not exposed you've been to death itself sure. so somebody who's been exposed to a lot of death in their lifetime may have an increased intensity and sensitivity to death overall and so they have a higher anxiety because they've had to confront the fear now that also gives them a high a high potential to accept death more than others who have not been exposed to it as much because they have more experiences to deal with um so we kind of have these two things that we're looking at these two continuums intensity and awareness um now i would say this when you look at when you look at that statement i'm not afraid of death right i'm not afraid of death fair fair enough i don't want to use this podcast to like burst anybody's bubble um burst my bubble (laughs) however i think we can just ask some very simple questions very very simple questions to kind of illuminate death anxiety um something like what i asked andrew like how frequently do you work out right how frequently do you work out how frequently are you checking your bank accounts Hmm. um how frequently well it's responsible to check your bank accounts but how frequently are you checking those bank accounts cleaning Um, your home how frequently are you cleaning your home like the all of like you can look at that what type of washing your hands washing your hands brushing your teeth putting shoes on imagine how much your life would shift if you decided not to wear shoes from this point forward um I, I, Somebody's grandmother definitely said, you'll get hookworms. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think that yeah, there's, there's that aspect of it. There's the social impacts of it. Um, there's the injury impacts of it. Like, And you might look at that and say, well, that's just common sense. Like, that's just social norms. And my question to you, which is what existential ideas are and where my head is right now is, well, why are they norm? Why is that common sense? See, there's something to be said for not just uh, not just looking at the world and saying, oh, yes, the world exists, right? And, oh, yes, these things exist. There's something for looking at the world and saying the inflection is, the inflection makes a difference is, you infuse it with curiosity and you say, oh, the world exists? Like, why? And why does it exist in the state that it's in? What drives it? Again, people turn to religious things because they seem to be more controlled and formulated. Right. But I, I, 
I've been raised in that tradition. I have a lot of respect for the tradition, but I've, I actually have been challenged to look at that, look at my tradition and say, okay, if my tradition was completely false, just completely false, um, can I accept my death into oblivion? Into yeah, the death of consciousness. Yeah, can I accept my death into the death of unconsciousness? Can I also accept the world in which it exists? with its suffering, pain, malevolence, joy, hope, meaning, meaningfulness, or purposefulness, can I accept all of those things minus my religious structures? Now, I happen to believe my religious structures are so ingrained in me because of the way I was raised that like, I really, really had to like dig them out to an extent. Sure. Because of this quote, actually, um, because of this quote, because my religion insulates me from the idea of death. Um, and I know that it does. I'm not dumb to that. And I don't think it makes the religion false or bad either. I don't think it makes the religion ignorant. But I think what it can do is cause you to put your eggs in a basket that you're not existing in yet. Um, okay, so... Go for it. So, I mean, would you... It almost kind of robs you in the in regards of like you're living for what comes next instead of living for what's right now. Precisely, which which I think is laden in scripture to to actually pay attention to what you're doing now. Right. There's whole books of the Bible, like Proverbs, right. where they're devoted to trying to give you wisdom to navigate your day right this moment. Right. But that's kind of scary. Like that's a little, uh, I want to say maybe for the lack of a better word, I mean, almost a little selfish to like, to do things for yourself, for others, uh, for an eternal reward. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus just doing, just doing things in the moment or doing things in your life right now, just because the right thing to do right. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you just, but you just nailed it like you yeah. just nailed the problem with gutting religion and it's right. the one that i've been struggling with now i'm not right. i'm gonna speak this very clearly i'm sure my grandmother or something is going to be listening to this <laughs> yeah. like i have not i have not removed myself sure. i have not removed yeah, religion from my life of but course. what i realized is i had to perform what has been i think a two maybe two and a half year long exercise of of removing religion from my relo- removing religion and letting religion be what it is and letting the gospel be what it is and letting what I think is truth be what it is outside of my desire to use it to pacify fear. Um, and like, this is the, okay. So this is the atheist platform, right? Mm-hmm. The atheists say you use religion to pacify the fears of your existence and ultimate uh, return to the earth, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Like, but it, but it can't. It becomes less of an argument if me as a religious person, I tease out the religion from pacification of my own fears and deal with the fears themselves and look for answers to the fears of existence itself and it's not some oh i have hope in heaven i hope that i will see god and that will make sense of all of this 
I actually am discovering that when you tease those things apart, there's a certain amount of sense that you can make with the fear of death without actually having to rely on some hopeful future. Um, and I think it's found in this in this quote, this idea right. that the I, yeah, yeah, the physicality of death may destroy you, but the idea of death may save you. Right. We see this in a in a sort of natural response with people who have chronic illnesses that are going to end in their their early death, death right. earlier than they anticipated it. Right? right, they were going to die anyway at some point in time, but now they've been diagnosed with something that says you have six months. Yeah. You can see this. There's studies that have been done on this, actually, and Yalom references these studies, but you can look at guys like Rollo May. You can also look at studies from Viktor Frankl's work in concentration camps. Well, he didn't. His work in concentration camps was actual, experience. Yeah, actual work experience yeah. in those concentration camps and seeing what kept people alive. But I think... Um, to come to come back to that point, like you can look at these different works and see that the quality of of the chronically ill diagnosis uh, person's life can drastically increase or drastically decrease. Right. So they can they can accept that death and what it means for the next six months of their life, and they live differently right. in a positive direction, or they reject and deny the death and become incredibly depressed right. that they are no longer going to exist in the state that they have. This is what I've discovered, Andrew, is like when we look at that negative trajectory, why would someone get depressed at the idea of their death? It's scary. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, it's like... Yeah, I mean, there's just, and plus, I mean, the fear of the unknown and what, it's just everything that drives anxiety. It's like, well, what comes next? Could it be more pain? Bingo. Or could it be something like a reward, right? Right. Flip that coin too. There's the fear. But if someone, if someone is scared that they're going to no longer live in the state in which they're living in, right. that means that the state that they're living in they conceptualize it as better than death. Mm. When you look at that, it's like a, a natural indicator that that there must be there there has to be some drive in you to live. Right. Why would you fear death? There's the fear of unconsciousness, right? right? Right. But it so flies under the radar. Nobody's thinking about that on a daily basis. Mm. Why is everybody working to improve the quality of their life? Because they see some sort of value in the world around them. Right. Why, when someone is faced with a chronically terminal illness, might they start seeking out and doing things that they wish they had done for forever? It's like that game you play. It's like uh, if you found out you're going to be, you're going to die in six months, what would you do? Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's like, why don't you do that anyway? <laughs> Precisely, because yeah. we're going to die. But yeah. when you move the needle closer, mm -hmm. you have to accept it. Yeah. But our insulation pushes the needle out of our yeah. conscious awareness, and we're not thinking, I'm going to die in six months. Yeah, everybody who joins the military, nobody's thinking, oh, I'm going to die. Right. Like, nobody actually thinks when they go on a deployment. And I've heard, like, dozens of military personnel say this. It's just like, well, yeah, I never thought, you know. Mm -hmm. it, like, nobody thinks it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and it, it, this goes, and that I think that nobody thinks it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. Like we can bring that, we can bring that around and say that's the atheist argument. Mm-hmm. It's like we do everything we can to prevent ourselves from thinking that right. we're going to be the one. Right. Here's here's where I've tried to navigate that as a religious person. But but what if I've worked on a, accepting my fear of death, and I find that the wisdom in the Christian tradition or the wisdom in the Buddhist tradition or the wisdom in the Hindi tradition. What, what if I find that the wisdom in those scriptures actually is going to enhance the quality of my life while I still have it? And I'm making a conscious choice to engage in that religious activity, those religious beliefs. I'm choosing to put my belief in this system because as I've dealt with my fear of death, as I've properly dealt with it, like okay, I'm going, like, I'm going to die. My bloom is very short in the scope of start of the universe, end of the universe. Sure. Like I am a, I am not, I don't even know if it's a blip on the radar. Like I am, it is such a quick bloom cycle for me. Like right. when you pair it in the, into, and, and even if you're like a new earth creationist and I think it's only 15,000 years old, like you're still just a blip on the radar. Right. Yeah. And so when you see that, it's like, when I see that, I'm going to personalize that. When I see that, it makes me realize like this, this life, this moment, this conversation um, is it makes absolutely no sense that I'm allowed to have it. Mm. Like it may, the the series of events for me to have been born and to exist in this moment for us to have met, for us to be having this conversation. Like when you consider the statistics of that, it make like it, it puts winning the lottery to shame. Um, So I, like when I, when I wrap my mind around that, it's like, and when I'm able to put the end cap on it of like, I don't even know when I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. It makes, it makes this moment because for all I know, I could drop dead right now of a heart attack. Like it, it makes this moment even more unreal that it's happening to me. I'm sort of baffled more by the idea that I get to live right. than, than I am scared of, that I am scared of dying. Yeah. Um, now I, as I've teased this out and as I've worked with this idea, um, I feel like my choices in regards to religion are informed by a desire to live a life in accordance with, with what I see and what I conceptualize as God. Like, and God no longer becomes a pacifier of death. God becomes a guide for life and i think that you wind up putting people can put anything in the place of god who said i don't believe in god it's like actually you have a value system you have a hierarchy system in which you place importance on things i would just say that the highest thing on your hierarchy is your god that's whatever motivates you right to I get mean, out of bed to, precisely yeah, yeah. and I, I think i forget who says that i totally AA. Yeah, yeah yeah right <laughs> it, but but i mean if you if you want proof for that just just look at how you have placed value on different restaurants um, mm-hmm. and different restaurant experiences. Like you place value on things and you put a high value on some things and a low value on others. For me, when I say God, I say 
that God becomes and in, becomes directly engaged with my life in the moment because I'm actually looking for sources outside of myself to enhance this experience while I actually have it because I'm grateful for it. Sure. Right. And I'm not like, that's not theoretical to me. That's become my reality. Right. And even in the throes of depression and anxiety and seeing the suffering of myself, my friends, my family members, like there is this sort of unshakable thing in there that has been developing in me that is like, no, these, thing, these things are sort of, they're the contract of me accepting to live today. It's, it's in the contract of human existence for these bad things to happen. Sure. And I think so many people say, well, God is the author of that. I say that's actually not really that important to think about. Right. Like we think about God, at least I think about God in accordance with this idea of like how, how do the concepts of God, the word of God, the, my position to God, like how do these things influence my day to day? It's no longer, and that's where I have, that's where I now struggle with the atheist criticism of that type of way of, or or just the atheist criticism of Christianity, particularly in this lens. It's like, but what if I'm not using it that way? What if I do address my fear psychologically and do so on a daily basis and try to accept and try to move forward to accept this idea of death and that I don't really need to insulate myself with it. I I will definitely participate in the social norms, but not because I'm anxious Um, or my awareness of my anxiety is high, but the intensity of my anxiety is low. Right. Yeah. A a way to kind of pull that scale into it. Uh, In a sense, I feel like, this exploration for me has has innocence has in a sense saved me now this is this is what blows my mind um can i throw something on yeah please sorry i'm uh, yeah you're sweating yeah (laughs) (laughs) getting fired up over here well i mean this is just something that i would tell when i when i worked with drug addicts a lot um you know uh there's always the looming possibility and likelihood of death when you're Mm -hmm. using certain substances and that's something that they would talk about regularly and so i would talk to them you know i would generally just tell them like hey you know we're talking about the finality of death but what we're forgetting is that every day we'll wake up we're born again Mm -hmm. and so what do we do with today so that kind of makes the whole like one day at a time statement a little hold a little more weight yes i mean it's you know i mean what okay so what are you gonna do i mean we we have symptoms we have things that come up we have pain so do we do things to make the pain worse or do we do things to learn about ourselves and manage the pain mm-hmm. you know i like and i I, I didn't expect this to go in a religious direction but it right. is and it so is. i'm just <laughs> letting that yeah um, i think I struggled to understand what prayer is, mm-hmm. what prayer truly is. And a, a journey that I think I took with prayer was that I expected prayer to change me more than it would change God. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think I took it with that soul 
approach like right. so often we hop in the car and this was a common thing when i grew up it's like we'd pray before we went on a long trip like god yes. travel mercy travel mercies right <laughs> hedge yeah. of protection right but but i've started praying differently in regards to something like that what i what i actually say is god give me in, enlighten me give me the wisdom to know how to drive properly to work yeah because, vigilance and alert right <laughs> yeah. it's like i i will pray for a hedge of protection but then i will blow through a yellow light yeah right i will not come to a full stop at a stop sign right. but it's like when i started praying in a different manner like hey like actually enlighten me to my humanness please so that i can work on that yeah. it's like when i came to the stop sign and i was about to roll it's like ooh, that that like I became way more aware. Make me aware of my distractions. Right, yeah. precisely. Like, and and I think that's what you're talking about. Uh, some people will use prayer. Some people will use uh, the AA text. Some people will use their friends, their family. Me personally, I, I my friends are my go-to. My wife is my go-to. My family is my go-to to try and understand how to make how to make how to make choices that alleviate the suffering of those around me, or at very least don't inflict more. Yeah. Right. Like and, substances, right? Right. Since, like since we're here, yeah, like out using there. an, like using a substance yeah. um, or, or how can I increase the quality of my life? And what I mean by quality of life is not increase my insulation to the core fears I have about existing. Because that so often gets confused. It's like increase the quality of my life, more money in my bank accounts, more harmony between me and my family and my friends and my wife, my kids getting into schools, making it out of poverty, do whatever you define that as. It's like make sure that's not actually intermingling or just serving as a buffer between you and actually accepting the fact that you're finite. Mm. Like what is good, dude? Like like, like we said earlier, it's like, well, I want to try and live good. I want to try and make good decisions. Well, how do you, how do you define good? Um, and I, again, I go back to this quote, this idea of death saving us. Well, what, what is, what is good? Like, I'm curious, like what comes to your mind when I throw that out there? What's good? Yeah, well, not like what's good, how you doing, how many, <laughs> <laughs> but what is what is good? What is good? We kind of have. I think everybody has an innate understanding of what evil is, but it's like, well, what right. is good? That's like that whole idea of knowing how much evil you're capable of, but choosing something different. Mm -hmm. Of you know, not lying to yourself. Of being aware of exactly exactly what you're capable of, but choosing something better. Yes. Now, we look at the Cain and Abel story, right? And we we have our first recorded murder in the Old Testament. And, and according to the Old Testament, this is our first recorded murder ever, right? right? We look at that, and we have murder out of jealousy, anger, disappointment, rage. The sacrifice wasn't good enough. Right. Um, and what's interesting is God's response to that was just like, hey, um, just just alter, like alter your altar, like change your altar, <laughs> yeah. like increase change it. your perspective. Yeah, increase it next yeah. time. Yeah. But how that was taken, 
by Cain was destructive. And why was it destructive? I tend to think because he felt that the very core of who he was and his position in the world was now threatened. Mm. And now he can't. And then he, maybe it was due to experience. I mean, he's only second generation according to traditional views of the Old Testament. Maybe he had not had the experiences to contend with this inner evil that was brought on by his parents. Sure. Right? Like, maybe he didn't understand that. Or maybe he did. Maybe he knew darn well. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. Smash my brother. Like, that's not... Right. Right? But it speaks to what you're saying. I think that what drives that that exercise of evil into the world around us, when we stop contending with our own ability to destroy the world around us, when we stop contending uh, with lies... Right. When we stop contending with cheating, stealing, when we stop contending with thoughts of jealousy or anger or rage, when we know that the other person that we're feeling them towards has not done anything personal to us, when we stop contending with those, I think what, what drives that, that lack of contending, is these, these core fears. I think that's actually what drives the anger and madness, the homicidality, the suicidality. Like we, we, we are fully engaged with the conflicts of isolation, meaninglessness, purposelessness. We are fully engaged with the fear of death. We are fully engaged with the fear of freedom, which is basically saying the lack of structure, the complete lack of structure. Um, so those fears actually drive us, from my perspective, those fears actually drive us to do our most patho- our most pathological actions uh, yeah. to engage in our greatest forms of evil. So it makes sense that if we contend with those fears with accurate acceptance mm-hmm. and use tools that actually address those and be in the experience and realize that I'm only isolated I'm only isolated if the lens through which I see everything disconnects me. Um, and that lens can be formulated by trauma. It can be formulated formulated by all sorts of different life Socially experiences. Socially constructed. Oh, I mean, my all these ideas that society says you're supposed to be one way or mm-hmm. uh, gender roles. I mean, you know, Dr. Lowe talked yeah. a good bit about that. Mm. I mean, but, but that's the thing, right? It's like these are ideas. Yes. These are thoughts yes. that drive us. Like, mm-hmm. And it's, it's what you were talking about at the very beginning. Uh, I think part of this is finding sound counsel. Yes. Uh, you're talking about uh, finding um, you know, healthy avenues to kind of process these things through um, friends and family, right? Yes. Yes. Um, otherwise, you're just in your mind and, it just, and you just reach and it just grows and grows and grows. And, you can, and these... these uh, social norms and expectations and ideas can actually create pathology and violence Mm -hmm. and addiction Mm -hmm. and just like all these unhealthy patterns. And, you know, part of what we're talking about here also has to do with a lack of, um, uh, ownership, right. Uh, which ownership is what, I mean, it goes back to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's just the awareness of self, Yes. Uh, awareness of your own behaviors, mm-hmm. uh, your own, I mean, again, the, the societal norms. Uh, this is how people 
become conformist, right? Yes. And then get wrapped up in all of this, the everything that's happening in the world, and you know all the. I mean, I think we know that the media is pretty good at psychologically uh, empowering that innate fear of death. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's how they make their money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you're all gonna die. Watch us so you don't yeah. die, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, <laughs> that's that was it. But uh, uh, no, that it's. But I mean, it's that's. It's just. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get off on a, like a media thing, but uh, no, I mean that's. Uh, it's not just in our own mind, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not part of our own consciousness. Like these things are are. We hear these messages day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of our job as therapists is to bring awareness to those things. Like, okay, you do realize like some of these thoughts that you're having, these expectations, like they're only thoughts. The thoughts in, uh, themselves can't kill you. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it's actually causing you pain. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just this awareness mm-hmm. of, you know, what's happening around you. But it's really actually just causing you pain, and you're you're reiterating by the behaviors that you're doing. So let's 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 hit the brakes on this. Mm-hmm. You know, let's yeah. let's bring some ownership and awareness to the things that's causing you more pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and those behaviors that you're talking about, uh, the more awareness you have of that behavior that insulates you, yeah. it's a substance use. Um, maybe it's maybe it's cutting. Maybe it has to do with eating. Maybe it has to do with um, just ruminating, set, yes, and just, separating yourself from the world around you, right? It's like uh, I had a flat tire this morning, so my day is ruined. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you had a flat tire this morning. That's yeah. that. That's really lame, and you relate mm-hmm. to work, but mm-hmm. it's your choice if that ruins your day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's that's a very simple example of how this grows and grows and grows and builds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to where we, you know, we create these, these phobias and then we act out of impulse and that's why, you know, everybody buys guns. <laughs> right. Well, and you, you just hit on a really important aspect, this idea of what we actually have control and choice over. Right. right? Because we, we have this fear of freedom and I didn't think I was going to get into it, but this fear of freedom that says like, we don't. We can't operate if there's absolutely no rules. Right. Right. It freezes you. Like there has to be some sort of construct. Yeah. But the the problem the problem with that is the fear becomes so great that we have to have construct that it winds up impeding on our flat tire moment. Mm-hmm. Where it's like we want to blame the construct. Right. Right? Like we actually don't want to have control. We don't want to have the freedom. We want something to tell us whether that was good or bad or not. We want something to tell us if it should ruin our day or not. Like that there's an actual fear of having to make that type, that type of choice for yourself. And it's legitimate, dude. Like I think that that's where, where if you tell someone, well, it's your choice, how are you going to view it? Right. 
and and, I, and you said it, it's kind of like a that's a simple way of putting it mm-hmm. and it's a it's a it's a it's like taking a finger and sort of mashing it on a nerve that has been open since right. god knows when right? right and so we find a certain measure of defensiveness in us mm-hmm. it's like oh that's not but you're just telling me that i can choose whether or not i'm happy or not it's like right. no actually no it's very different we're, what what we're saying is is that in order to properly contend with the fear of absolute freedom in order to contend with your desire for structure you have to pursue ownership yeah that's the only way to combat with that fear is to try and establish ownership and in that moment you actually can have ownership right the flat tire moment but we can very it's a tendency to become defensive or it's like oh you're choosing to think that way but it's subconscious that's the thing it's a subconscious choice to to do right. this and what you're saying what i heard in it is like when the awareness is there when the awareness becomes yeah, present you you now have the choice yeah, it's like right? okay so this is oh man i hate having a flat tire this is super lame like i'm gonna be late to work i'm gonna be late to a meeting yes. this is gonna cost me some money mm-hmm. but it's okay yeah like i'm just gonna change my tire i'm gonna go on with my day like this is super lame but this is this doesn't alter my life right or there's the impulse Mm -hmm. the impulse is like this always happens to me like you know my day is ruined like i'm gonna go in and i'm gonna complain and tell everybody about this Mm -hmm. and you know and just make you know kind of a show about it because we want people to like uh, empathize mm-hmm. with us, sure. right? That but, connection, right? We don't want to be it, isolated. Yes, right? so it <laughs> yeah. all comes back to these yeah. things. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just that it's just that that awareness, right? The awareness mm-hmm. gives you the option because we're all going to have our impulse drives, and this is what we were talking about earlier. Uh, this has to do with the the personality building and the trauma and the things that happen in childhood, right? That shape our personality. Yeah. Um, but. You know, so we're going to have these impulse. I mean, your central nervous system is going to kick in. Your your brain's going to interpret the body sensations, the acidic feeling in your stomach, the tightening in the chest, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, and then your brain has to interpret that. And so, you know, then that come then that's when it's coming into your consciousness. And then we have a but then we have a choice to make, right? Yes. It's okay. So do I let this affect my day, or do I accept it for what it is, and then do I move on? Yeah. And I think that's why I actually really enjoy being a counselor is because there's an opportunity in the, in the therapy relationship to provide a safe enough experience that mm-hmm. someone can actually realize that they, they do have the choice. Because when yep. you've been through so many things that jeopard, and I'm thinking about, I have some clients running through my head, I've just experienced, uh, a long string of sufferings. Yeah. It's like you don't know that it's that you you're not maybe aware that it is safe enough for you to take choice and take uh, ownership in those moments, or you think you can't at all. But right. there, after doing you know a few years of work with a client, what else? What I'll see is that they've actually used the therapy relationship sure. and the safety that has been created in that room to start launching into other areas and experimenting to the extent that they have experimented into the therapy room because totally. they now have an experience to pair along with it. Right. I, and I think that's that's one of my greatest joys in in being a therapist is being able to provide those types of experiences for people that say, hey, like, yeah. 
we can bring this to awareness and you're if you're contending with the fear if you're contending with your inner evils you're likely to actually make a good decision in this yeah. uh, and and i think that ties back around to like well what is good mm-hmm. it seems to me that good is that which contends with the evil like mm-hmm. that sits juxtaposed to it and what is a good person who's a good person it's like, well, how do we define that or who knows how to define that but how i define it is you're you're actually aware of what your fears can drive in you and cause yes. you to do you're aware of what the fears in others can cause them and right. drive them to do and you actively combat those within yourself and within other people to me that is that is what's good and you start to see the sort of archetypal stories throughout all of recorded history of this emergence of the holy figure the holy figure takes the journey the holy figure faces death succumbs to death and in some way cheats beats or destroys death and is able to give whatever is the opposite of death to the world around that figure Um, you see that narrative start to play out and that's why i say i look to this i look to that model because it makes sense sure it makes sense with everything we're saying is like you actually have to look these fears in the face despite everything you've been through and say like i don't want you to run me anymore i don't want you to run me anymore i'm doing things that i'm not proud of i'm doing things that i can't even get behind i'm causing more suffering right and and i'm not gonna I'm not going to participate in that and I will actively fight against anyone who's participating with that type of behavior in their life. I will help them contend again if if they're not wanting the help. We don't go that far. But if someone's wanting the help, we take them that far. If someone's trying to exercise that over you, that's where assertiveness comes in. It's like, no, I will not succumb to that fear. I'm going to try and actually address it versus just insulate myself with bitterness and shame and in right. feelings of inadequacy right. uh over this boss who's been driving me into the ground for the last two right. years right thus is the power of memory mm-hmm. right we can we can use our memory to hold on to that trauma right to become bitter at that boss um to say you know the whole thing of you know this always happens to me you know mm-hmm. almost like the victimhood uh the opposite of the ownership mentality Versus, uh, I mean, again, just, you know, recognizing that and being able to hold on to those memories of the, the suffering, the pain, gaining perspective and using the, um, the process of life to try to do things differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't, you know, hold on to all that stuff and, and, you know, I mean, well, we can, we do, (laughs) you know, but you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, it's like, okay, so, so bad things have happened to me, you know, um, I've made some really poor choices. We all have things that we wish we could change about ourselves in our journey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think of the healthy places is like, well, okay, no, like, you know what, it's okay. And now I have perspective. Now I have the memory and the conscious awareness of the things that I can do to add to my suffering, or I can try things differently and try a different approach. So that's giving you the option. Right. 
it also helps buttress you against helplessness. Right. Like the feeling of helplessness because, oh, well, someone is just going to come along and abuse me again. But if the abuse that you've experienced in the past is trapped in a box of fear, yeah, you're you're not actually going to be able to look at that and say, how can I combat it? If it's trapped in a traumatic bubble that is wreaking havoc on these four fundamental fears that you are already blessed with at birth (laughs) um so i i think when we look at that and we come back around um when we look at that and we circle back around to this idea of like okay so um how how this idea of death saves us we're looking at the fundamental fear we're addressing it we're sort of taking ownership of it we're trying to choose paths that are healthy and productive yeah. and we're looking to resources outside of us to live good lives and by good that means good lives that combat with our own inner evils and try and minimize the suffering of those around us and propel forward into something positive these this fear of death though if if insulated and insulated to such a high degree that you can't engage with your own termination i don't know that you i don't know that you will be able to look i know that i wasn't able to properly look at the world around me and be actually aware that's like and 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 i i I, my christians and brothers and sisters it's like christ had to look at his own death Mm. every day like i don't know how he could have been god and not aware of when he was going to die in the manner in which he was going to die he had to look that into the face every in he had to look at that every day yeah. and people will say well well he did that so that i don't have to it's like, no he did that as a model of how it works mm. um and that's the reason there's no sting in death is because you wind up accepting the death for itself and trying to live your current life into its fullest and most impactful manner Let's take a break though. I have some like I have some really helpful thought exercises that just rolled into my mind that might be helpful in thinking about something like that. So take a break. We'll be back in a few minutes. All right, so we're back from our break. Uh, the uh, creative juices were flowing there, but uh, needed a little uh, little time to regroup and. Um, Anyway, man, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, where we need to go from here? Yeah, so I was thinking about a couple different thought exercises that are actually really, uh, really helpful in regards to what we're talking about. It's really easy with this type of stuff to get in your own head. One, Mm -hmm. that's why I'm really glad we're having a conversation about it. But two, um, you know, once you've had a conversation about it, it's really easy to just leave it there. Um, But these things kind of practically force you to deal with your existence in some sort of manner that you feel is productive now um, maybe not all people but but they're compelling oh i think uh i think homework's always a good idea it's kind of like uh paying four thousand dollars to go to a tony tony robbins weekend and getting (laughs) fired up but then you still have to live your life so yeah yeah uh this uh yeah so I'm, i'm eager to hear about what your uh what your exercises are yeah, so the the first one that I've found helpful in in my own processing is actually from Nietzsche. Uh, if you don't know who Friedrich Nietzsche is, um, <clears throat> he's a German philosopher. 
um, for all of his faults and inadequacies and the misuses of his uh, texts, uh, Nietzsche left us with some really, really good things to think about. Um, sure. But this thought exercise is sort of mind-blowing to me mm -hmm. and was mind-blowing when I first encountered it and still to this day because it flies in the face of the concept of live like you're dying. Um, because what I hear that as is like, uh, so fully engage the fear of death uh, and let it run your life for the next six months. <laughs> yeah. Right? Live like you're dying. It's like, no, yeah. no, no, no. Like address address death as imminent and and he says look at it like this so instead of thinking well if you die in six months what would you what would you do in that six months like yeah. what are the things that you would do who would you talk to what are the experiences you would have right. what would you do how would you behave right. how would how would you do what would you do what experiences would you seek after this flips things on its head and says look like how are you going to orient yourself to live mm -hmm. um so see yourself as dead as of this moment, look back over your life, take a good hard look at it, because you're going to have to live it on repeat, just the way it's happened, not, not able to make any changes. You'll have to live that on repeat for eternity. Now, I'm not saying this is what will happen. I'm saying this is a thought experiment, right? I don't hold this personal belief. Yeah. Um, but let's say you did. Now, look at your current moment, the moment you're living in. What would you like to shift to make your life more livable and more enjoyable if you have to live it on repeat from start to finish for eternity? Because you're not dead in this moment. The experiment is picture yourself as dead now, right? Yeah. But you're not dead now. We're alive right now. And hopefully, in, in hope and in essence, we have some future. <laughs> we have some future to look forward to, like Andrew said, sort of every morning being a rebirth. We look forward to that rebirth. Um, and we say to ourselves, how might we, how might we live? What might, might we shift? What might we change if we had to live this thing over again? Like when you look at it that way, when you start to see through those lenses, you're not looking at a six-month timeline to cram in as much as you can. You're looking at your day-to-day -day life and saying, I need to establish a why. Like, I need to establish a purpose. This is where we get into some deeper work. It kind of pulls you into, okay, if I'm going to address this thing, I'm going to address it with some sort of purposefulness and some sort of of meaning so that I'm adding value to my life, whatever it is that you value, I'm adding those things that I value into it. So if I have to live this thing over again, I at least know from this point forward, I will live it sure. in a manner that I'm much more engaged, right. much more intentional mm -hmm. um, and purposeful with my actions. And I'm keeping an eye on my behaviors Right. I'm keeping an eye on particularly the behaviors that pacify my fears. True. Um, so that's a that's a very helpful exercise. I think that promotes um, that promotes both looking at death as a as a as a as a part of your life that occurs that ends something, right. but then then looking at your life currently and saying, okay, like. I'm going to have to live this over and over again. How do I want to do it? Right. How do I want to do it? It, it really does start to shift things. 
Um, and it, it also makes you a bit hungry for people that have uh, hungry for the knowledge of those that have found ways to live good lives and pursue uh, honorable and noble purposes uh, right. with their lives. It's, we wind up turning to those figures who have kind of figured out a code. Mm-hmm. We have thousands of years of code. Right. We have thousands of years of recorded history. I think this is where the modern church has struggled, uh, mainly mainly since Azusa Street for the evangelical Pentecostal forms of uh, forms of denomination and religion is largely disconnected from the history of history of the church. Hmm. And so you 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 have the start of a denomination in the early 1900s and that is its history right. that it's not natural to look at the 2000 years of history and all of the wisdom and all of the thinkers that have come prior to you mm. and there's so much to pull from there but right. that that's in the example of religion we can look in the example of philosophy we can look in the, the examples of family right. we can look at the examples of fatherhood we right. can look at the examples of motherhood uh, I, it goes on and on and on we have this wealth of knowledge that we can tap into and say this seems right to me and i think one of the guys that hits the radar for me and this is sort of another sort of thought type experiment that you can do with yourself is victor frankel Viktor Frankl uh, in basically invented logotherapy, which is not really practiced nowadays, but the essence of logotherapy is really infused in a lot of modern therapy, and it focuses on meaning, meaningfulness and, and finding and establishing purpose. Right. Um, very brief lesson on Viktor Frankl. He was a very well-known psychiatrist uh, before World War II, and it was even more well-known after uh, being rescued from uh, uh, the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. Um, so he was taken to a concentration camp, him and his wife. His my wife witnessed her walking into a gas chamber, and then I think he spent four years. Is it? I believe it's four years. It was four years in concentration yeah. camps surviving and um, put through the same torture and hell that you could picture from these um, from these camps now. What he realized while he was there, somehow in, in his state, he was able to pay attention to the fact that people lived when they established some sort of purpose for their living. And a lot of times it was outside of the camp. It was future-oriented. But it required the purpose. The purpose was also required to be in the present. So there's this fascinating scene in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is sort of his his account where he feels himself die. he knows he's dying mm-hmm. in fact he participates in a dying uh in a in a human like it's human reaction when we're dying to crawl to a corner to try and find a tight space to to kind of like hunch over and he actually falls off of his cot and crawls to a corner and hunches down he feels himself dying from fever and he grabs a piece of charcoal and he begins to write Oh, right. Yep. And he feels the, he literally feels sort of life come back into him and he's rejuvenated. And in that moment, he sort of establishes this purpose. Well, I'm to write. 
Mm. Like I am to write. I think we get very lost in this idea of purpose and make it too complex. Mm. This moment and this exercise for me, when you put yourself in the corner and you're dying and you need something from inside of you, whether you feel like God put it there or not, it's like you need something from inside of you to come up along and help combat death itself. Meaning and purposefulness are able to do that. For him, it was to write. And he got out and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning and that book has changed a it's lot like, like, of people's lives. Is it like 10 million copies? Yeah, it's, is that crazy? It's something absolutely ridiculous, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, and and but, but what's amazing is the personal reaction that he had to engaging into that meaning that meaningfulness literally while he's dying and the, the irony of this situation is he is a physician and he's been put in the quarters with all of the sick patients and he's been ordered to take care of them right so he's been ordered with to nothing. face with nothing he's with being like treated. water and yes. rags he's being treated the same exact way yet right. he's being asked to to take care of sick patients which is like you you see this you see this idea play out this sort of christology of like you he was given nothing more than what the people in the beds had yet he was he was f facing their death with them trying to save them and all the while now hunched in a corner about to die himself until he engages his purpose and overcomes death in that moment well that's a powerful concept man like and I think we get it so convoluted. We make it complex. We tie it to career. We tie it to all of these things. Like years ago, I actually narrowed my own down to my my purpose, my meaning is is to be intentional. Like mm. that is that like at the end of the day, like how do I evaluate myself? Right. Was I intentional? Because that's what I feel like I was. I I have been crafted to be both by my experiences. Uh, and by my friendships and my families and literature and religion. That's what I've been crafted to be. And so that is what saves me in my deepest despair, personally. In my deepest despair, I engage intentionality even if I feel like I can't. Like, I try to be as intentional as I can, and it's what lifts me. Um, so it's almost like when you're... Uh, almost like uh, the idea like when life gets you down, like not really about to die but you know when when you know when times are, are difficult like when you're when you feel like you're kind of in that corner of death yes. right then yes. that's that sounds like that's just kind of your go-to to uh to be intentional mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well it goes to this quote um from man's search for meaning which is very popular which i think he actually borrowed from nietzsche the, <laughs> the quote um he who has a why can bear almost any how um, or he who has a why for life or a why to life right. can bear almost any how. And it's, it's a method to combat suffering. Right. Um, and it's not one that insulates you from your primal fears. It actually makes you aware hmm. that you are living. Sure. But you, you are asking yourself and you're, you're, you're curious, okay, so why am I living right now? Why hmm. will I continue to live like, yeah. what is my why? And if you have a strong enough why, and you've yeah. really put, you work that why out. I mean, you put you put muscle and belief behind that why. Yeah. You can overcome all types of suffering. Yeah. Like I think we see it again in these sort of 
these these archetypal stories that flow through religion. It's yes. like if Christ did not have the purpose and the meaningfulness uh, that that he knew somewhere deep inside of him that his own death would result in what has been the last 2000 years since he's since he's died and also the restoration and atonement of man and god which is just a mind-blowing concept i don't know how to fully wrap my mind around it but anyway but you look in other you look in other traditions and you see a very similar you see a very similar story um there is a clear why and a clear purpose but it's not because it's been handed to them like oh here you know like some outside force has handed it to them I can imagine that any of these figures, that any important figure in my life, I don't even have to imagine, like I've heard their stories, like they had to confront the most utter despair within themselves in order to understand why in the world they would persist. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I um, something I talk to my clients about regularly is is – it's this idea of, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? But, I mean, having a goal and a standard and expectation for where you're going. Yes. I mean, it's the why. Yes. It's because we get so lost in the daily grind of of our routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get, um, you know, pretty comfortable in, in, in what's happening. But then I feel like that's where pathology creeps in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when we don't have, I mean, we can... Hopefully, like we have goals, right? Mm-hmm. But then we have this whole idea of like, okay, my life is going to be this way when I when I get to this point. But it's not like you celebrate that 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 season for a week, two weeks. It's right. like getting a new car, right? It's you know eventually mm-hmm. it's just going to be a, another vehicle, you yes. know. Um, but you know, I think uh, one of the the areas that we kind of get lost on it lost lost in is just this idea of you know, I mean it. It's more of a marathon. It's it's a process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Well, it's almost like you you, can't, like with a with a why. It's almost like you can't evaluate it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like I, my purpose is to get this job. Yeah. Right. Like. Okay, so you get you get the job and then you establish a new purpose. Really, I, I think that's like the goal. It's like, why do you want the job in the first place is the why that we're talking about. And you almost have to evaluate that in a sort of retrospect. Like I said, how do I evaluate my why, my reason for getting up every morning, which I feel is to be intentional. I'm going to wake up and be intentional with every task that I have in front of me to the best of my ability. I will give it, I will give it my effort that, that to me is a good enough why why do you get up and do it it's like well i want to be intentional that is my that is my why because i feel like if i be if i'm intentional with what i'm doing there's some there's gears that click with inside of me that are sort of impenetrable once they start clicking like not much gets to that Uh, and that's what frankel was saying about this concentration camp experiences the, the most severe form of dehumanization didn't get to him in a manner of death like it could have what is um, the quote uh he says uh in the concentration camp they can take every everything away from you but they can't take away your mind is that it or your i think it, that's that was the section where he was talking about the writing 
I can look it up really quick. Um, let's see. They can take everything away from me. Let's see if we can find it real quick. There's like a million texts there. Um, because he talked about the idea of, I mean, you know, they shave their heads. They, they, I mean, torture them. It was, I mean, everything was regimented. Everything was, um, uh, yes. When they go ahead. Yeah, so it, yeah, they did. I mean, they severe dehumanization. Yes. Like, took everything from their boots to their names. Yes. Right. Like right. and their family members. Yeah, there were there were a number. Yeah. Um, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. Uh, the last of one's freedom is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Bingo. That's awesome. Right. And I'll, I'll repeat it again. Go for it. <laughs> pastorally ways. Uh, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last one, the last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. And, and I like, there is a natural inclination in me to say that's BS there's something in me that just wants to say that, right? Mm. Yeah, like I can't choose my attitude. Except for, this is why it's so powerful coming from this man. It's yeah. like, if anybody has the right to say it, like, this guy does. I, yeah. he's, he's, had his, he's had his humanity stripped away to nothingness. Yeah, I mean, this is a man who was, uh, I mean, educated... Like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what the academic pipeline for psychiatry was uh, back then, yeah. but you know, I mean, one could imagine it was anywhere from eight to 12 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, uh, to be separated from one's family, yes. um, which I think is most of most people's worst nightmare. I mean, mm -hmm. and beyond. Yes. Or even to, to know that, to watch your wife die. And to be able to yeah. do nothing and not react to it. I don't think he saw her die. Right. Um, he because uh, he would he would fantasize about about right. talking to her, but then he reflected later on, uh, like the timeline that she was already deceased mm -hmm. when he was when because that was an aspect of keeping him alive, and that, I think it kind of yes. goes back to the the motivation. What do you do with your mind? Yes. Um, yeah. uh, and so that was. I mean, like I said, part of his his main motivation, but in fact, she was actually already deceased. But I, don't, mm -hmm. I can't. I don't. Did he? I don't know that he witnessed her die. I think or, she was actually separated and went to a different camp, put in a different truck. I'm. I'm. I could be off. That might be. That might be what happened. I have it in my head. The detail being that they did. They were divided, but sure. he knew that she was going like it was a gas chamber line. Yeah. Um, yes, it was. So I. I think he saw her walk towards that area but it's okay. here walk into gotcha. the chamber gotcha. or anything like that yeah gotcha. but knowing that yeah so it was a correction yeah knowing that she was dead or going to die in that manner i mean and it, it really is helpful again to look at these sources of wisdom people that have seen tremendous suffering and had to face death and to see how they handled themselves in it um there's a reason we admire people in those scenarios too can we yeah. uh can we touch on Okay, so, like, this man experienced, I mean, the, the worst thing that 
I mean, you could imagine, right? Yeah, it's, what, it's the greatest atrocity of the 20th century, um, I think. But then, you know, a lot of clients that, you know, that, that we work with, you know, will say, well, you know, I know that you probably see a lot, a lot worse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? But there's no comparison. Right. Um, well, because, I mean, it's just it's one person's, one person's pain uh, is, is just as real to them as another person's pain. So Victor Frankl's yes. pain was just as real to them as a, as a person who has a flat tire on the way to work and is experiencing anxiety. Like yeah. that's as real to them as Victor Frankl's mm-hmm. pain. So they're, you know, but again, it's, what do you do with it? Yes. Well, and I think, you know, it, it, what you're saying is totally about the human response is the same. Yeah. Right. To, it could be your dog dying tomorrow and it yeah. could be watching your wife walk towards a gas chamber. Like, we all have the same emotional systems. Like yeah. We operate and function yeah. in the same ways. And a lot of time, this, the, the stimuli doesn't even have to be at the same intensity to elicit the same response, particularly based on what you've been exposed to. Right. I, now, you look at that, and the reason I find peace in something like what Viktor Frankl says, or mm. Frankl says, is because I, like, there's a measure to which he faced such a tremendous atrocity that it validates the truth for me, Mm. right? It's like it proves true in even the worst circumstance. So it can can prove true for me too. It doesn't have to be comparison. It's looking at it and saying, does it work across experiences? And it's like... Yes. Well, he saw in his in his extreme circumstance, he saw the best in people and the worst in people. Right. In in the worst circumstance imaginable. Mm-hmm. Yep. You should read the book, <laughs> not you. But well, I've read it like three read, times. <laughs> if, you if you haven't read the book, guys, you should totally read *Man's Search for Meeting*. It's a it's a quick read, um, and you can also get it on Audible. For yeah. like three bucks or something. Well, like if you that. come to Traverse, we give. We usually yeah, just we usually have like a stockpile of we yeah. just hand out. <laughs> well, yeah, that's um, so. Those as far as some thought exercises go on that sort of infinite, that infinite loop of life, and also this uh, facing the worst atrocity. What is it that would keep you? Um, what is it inside of you that you would like? Uh, to motivate and drive you. And again, I, 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 to encounter nihilists and atheists who will say to me like, well, what's the, what's the point of all of that? Right. And my response is actually really simple is what would you like the point to be? Um, because you are actually allowed to take ownership of that heart and there's nothing biological and there's nothing environmental. And there's, there's nothing that says that, you can't. Um, now, I understand there's a certain amount of like conscious awareness one needs to engage that level of thinking, right? At least that's what literature says. But who knows? Like, who know? Who knows what somebody in uh, in in a in a tougher cognitive capacity or with cognitive struggles or with cognitive disabilities? Who are we to say? And who are we to know what they process? And so I I tend to believe, and maybe it's more optimistic, that this is actually across, um, like this checks out to be true across and can check out to be 
true across the plane of of uh, of humanity. Now, I I mean, I'm sure there would be people that would argue with me on that, but that's um, oh, okay. It's your podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you say what you I, want. To say. <laughs> right. I choose. I do choose. That is something that I choose to believe in, even though that there's not. I mean, there's not evidence of it, but there's like we believe in a lot of things that there's not evidence of, including like that we have a right to pursue happiness. Um, that, that's not something we have evidence for yet. We believe it and it's sort of the sustaining factor of American culture. Right. It's in our own, it's in our own documents, the founding of our nation. So, right. <clears throat> but anyway, I do believe this checks out. I, I, I believe that anyway. So read the book. You can decide for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Read the book. Go for it. Now, um, so so what direction? I mean, what direction does that take us? Well, I I think where this where where this has led me in my thought process, and just getting this out actually, it's been helpful to kind of string these things together, string this these lines of thought together as we kind of go through them. Um, I think. I think I would I would hope that the result of a conversation like this and I feel like the result of this type of conversation for myself even is to start to look at the things that I actually value um, and to start looking at how I treat them and to start looking at how I want to treat them um, and once I've once I've done that I can sort of examine what in the world is getting between me and behaving and doing and living the way that I would like to live. And I feel like for so much of us, it's actually traumatic experiences. I feel like those things sort of stand as a, uh, as a block, the mental block, whether they exist in repression and we're not dealing in denial, repression mm -hmm. and denial, or mm -hmm. whether they exist in a way in which they pop up and are triggered in the moment and we don't feel very in control of ourselves. Yeah, the unconscious steps in. Right, right. Fall onto those uh, unhealthy cycles. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like there are unhealthy religious beliefs mm -hmm. that impede. Sure. Um, I feel like there are unhealthy beliefs about, beliefs about family that impede that... That maybe they they feel so foundational you're not willing to challenge them but they actually stand between you and being authentic um, they stand as a buffer between you actually addressing these these areas these these four fears that I've brought up but mainly uh, I know we focused a lot on death right mm -hmm. it's like to try and remove these buffers so that you have to confront that you're going to die. And it's, and not pacify that with, well, I believe in an afterlife, but to let that thought actually enhance the quality of your life. And what I've experienced is this, like, actually it doesn't increase the, increases the quality of your life because it increases your desire to engage with life. That's a good way of saying it. The, the quality of your life goes up because you're now actually willing to engage, engage with life as it's presented directly in front of you. And for me, it's caused me to look even more into religious principles because I don't know how in the heck to do that. Right. That doesn't feel biologically wired in me. Oh, like 
I know how to engage life properly, <laughs> right? Like I actually need these outside influences. And I know I've pulled from like, uh, the, I, I think, I think there are some people that I even went to school with or maybe even with my own family that would just be like, you are looking at some really strange avenues to access truth here. Um, but at the same time, we, we realize that like, we, like, even when we look, when we look in the Christian texts, like the the wise men that came to confirm that this was the savior, this this appeared to Mary and Joseph to sort of uh, confirm that this Jesus was a big deal and mm-hmm. and was the Son of God. They were definitely not Jewish. Uh, they were pagans um, and so like we, there's an extent to which truth is truth like, right. regardless of who it's coming from um, and that's I mean again that's something that I've been wrestling with over the last uh, decade with probably since Bible school was trying to really expand and understand like how do I engage life well? What can I pull from in order to engage it well to contend with my own inner evils, to actually look at death and let it serve as something that can save me? And in, in, in my own Christian tradition, how that seamlessly integrates into Christ's death saving me. I, and and I, I mean, there's, there's so many overlaps and parallels. I like one scripture, and we can look at it psychologically. It's been sticking out to me in Psalms 25. I like more than one scripture, but I like this scripture particularly. It's, it's, the, it's the privilege of God to conceal things. And it's the privilege of kings to discover them. Um, and I look at this, and I think, man, like... How much hasn't been revealed? Like, how much is there out there? And how much of it just hasn't been revealed to me? I'm not saying there's anything new under the sun, but I certainly don't know everything under the sun. It makes me excited and passionate to learn more, to grow more, to expand my horizons and see how it impacts the trajectory of the generations that follow me in my own family. One thing I'd like to throw out there is, so I feel like um, like certain military people have kind of uh, like done this well. So just kind of that uh, whole war brings out the best and the worst in people, right? Yeah. Um, and you know those who have experienced war and and experienced loss in war. Uh, you know, a lot of them come back and they say, you know, I, I try to live my life to the fullest in honor of those who didn't get to come home, you know, in honor of those who, uh, who didn't get to, um, uh, you know, live their life, you know, to the beyond war. Right. Right, right. Um, I don't know. I just, I just, it's kind of stuck out to me in a couple of the themes that you've brought up. Um, just that idea of even so outside of military and outside of war, but just that idea of almost honoring the dead in a way of, of doing better for yourself for the duration of your life. Mm 
Um, yeah, dude. Uh, there was one point where you were talking about, uh, well, I, I can't remember specifically what you were saying, but it, 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 my mind went to the idea of the one of the worst atrocities that can happen in a person's life, which would be the lo- the loss of a child. Yeah. Um, but in reality, a person might think, I can't go on. I can't continue to live like this, you know, with the grief and the magnitude of and the weight of that. But in reality your life's not going to stop Mm -hmm. and you are going to have to live the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But it, it, again, it just, it goes back to, Oh, I think you were talking about the, uh, the Nietzsche, uh, philosophy of, um, you know, if your life lived on repeat, you know, so, um, you know, if that was, if that was the case, you know, even if you experienced the worst atrocities, uh, in the early part of your life, but to actually try to, um, you know, live the best you can to, to, you know, bring awareness Mm. to, uh, to take ownership, to Mm. take, you know, ownership of, of, of your thoughts and your impulses. And you, you might label it as sin or metacognition or, you know, whatever it is that the, the pattern that, that maybe holds you back and, and causes more pain, but to actually, um, you know, recognize that to live is to suffer in many capacities mm-hmm. um, and almost become comfortable with that idea and not lose yourself or fall back on negative coping mechanisms uh, when suffering does come up mm-hmm. because we can't change it. We can't block it. Things yes. are going to happen in our life and it's going to be unfortunate, but we can, uh, again, it, it kind of, it's also what Pronkel said, yeah. right? I yes. mean, it's it's how you interpret it and what you do about it. Yes. Um, life can't take away, life can strip you of, 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 of almost everything, but not your response to how you address the issue. Yeah, yeah. And, and consequently, ultimately, death will strip you away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you're living. Yeah, so get fired up about living. Yes, precisely. Right. Um, you know, it makes me think of this idea of uh, rippling to, I think it was Socrates that brought, brought it up. But one of the ways in which you do continue to live on is through your impact on those who were close around you. So you can think of your actions as corrective. Um, there's almost a way of, it's like self-redemption. Uh, it's like you're redeeming your suffering through your actions and subsequently rippling that redemption yeah. into the world around you. Yeah. Um, sounds familiar, right? Like mm-hmm. these, these, these concepts are not new, but we rarely personally apply them. Sure. And so I, again, I think it's due to fear. I think it's fear keeps us from um, applying them. And if you, if you're struggling to, to understand this idea of fear, just pay attention to how many things you, you felt anxious about when we were talking in this conversation, right? What, what anxiety welled up in you? That's, that's a sign that a fear is being activated. And so what are you avoiding? What are you telling yourself uh, that you can't take any more of? Right. Um, (sighs) Well, dude, I think I'm a, I think my thought maker is, yeah, we're about nine hours in. So. <laughs> My thought makers piddling out on me. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I think. So we're going to uh, take some fish oil and we're going to be back in about five minutes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, I think uh, I really enjoyed the conversation with you, Andrew. Great questions and uh, great feedback. And, and, and I hope this was helpful to anybody listening. I, I hope that my thoughts were coherent is actually a pretty vulnerable place to be to try and string sure. all of these things together for, yeah. um, for a discussion like this, particularly, I don't have any notes and I haven't really prepared. It's really just what has been on my mind. Well, it's, um, it's a conversation that's been continued for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's not totally just on, on a whim. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, um, I definitely appreciate the opportunity and, uh, I guess till next time. Well, and I just like to throw one more thing in. And uh, if, if any of our, the conversation or any of the previous podcasts have brought, you know, any questions or, you know, anything like that, I mean, feel free to email us. Um, because I mean, you know, some of the things we covered today, I mean, we're, we're, we've covered a lot of religions and philosophers and, you know, so, I mean, you know, if you have a question, we would, we'd love to, you know, follow up with you and, and, um, you know, even create a conversation with the audience, uh, anybody with anybody who's listening. So by all means, don't, don't hesitate to ask any questions. And so we can continue the conversation with you as a listener. Yeah, seriously, if you send us your questions, either in email or if you want to record yourself asking the question, <laughs> punch it through in an email to contact at Info Traverse, we'll play it on the podcast or we'll read it on the podcast and actually try and answer it. Um, please, right. please. I, I'm sure that this elicited some sort of response from you. Yeah. Maybe Josh, maybe the response is Josh is a little crazy, um, but I mean... <laughs> I don't know if that's a question or not. <laughs> um, but we yeah, can, uh, we can address it though. We, yeah, I can sure. try to counsel him if he is crazy and um, give him a, slap him with a diagnosis. Of course, uh, he would. He, he would owe me some some money then. Yeah, yeah. I sure would. <laughs> so, so, all right, man. Well, hey, I enjoyed the conversation as well, and uh, we'll finish up. Yeah, we'll catch you guys on. next time. All right, and I'm supposed to say toodles, and I don't want to. All right, see y'all. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> you have been listening to The Counselor's Chair, sponsored by Traverse Counseling Services. For more information, visit our website at www.traversecounselingservices.com or email us at contact at infotraverse.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. This podcast was recorded and produced by Josh Zello.